What does the Bible say about pets and animals after death? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. The task of these 144,000 is to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world during the midst of the greatest calamity and tragedy the world has ever said. We're in a year-long study of the book of Revelation, and this week we come to chapter 7, sometimes referred to as the interlude chapter. We already know that many people die during tribulation, many Christians. What is it about these 144,000 that causes them to be protected? We saw in chapter 6 that things will go downhill pretty quickly after the church is raptured out of this world and the Antichrist begins to take control. The Antichrist will try to stop their message as he comes to power and as he solidifies his strength. He will try to stop their message, but he will be unable to. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. The description of war and famine and disease and death, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions point to a future that is pretty grim for those living on the earth during that time. But today, Pastor Clay shows us in chapter 7 that even in the midst of all that will be going on, God is going to move in a powerful way in the lives of tens of millions of people. Imagine, if you will, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going all over the world. Some people have asked if people will be saved during the tribulation period. Well, today we'll learn the answer to that question and more. Thanks for joining us this week. Now let's go right to God's Word. I think that this is the first time that we will actually cover an entire chapter in one week. I believe. We usually we've broken down the chapters and it's taken several weeks to get through most of those chapters. But, but I think this is the first week that we're actually going to look at an entire chapter, uh, time allowing. Uh, we're in Revelation chapter 7 this morning and we're going to read the entire text uh, because I just, I just think it's good for you to hear it in its entirety. Sometimes we'll read it as we go, but I think it's really important to read it. Now, as we get ready to break down Revelation chapter 7, there's something you need to keep in mind. And this is very, very important for your understanding of the book of Revelation in general. Not everything that happens in the book of Revelation is happening in chronological order. Okay? Um, the book itself, the book of Revelation in the Bible, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation does cover the entire time period um, from the trip. Well, it talks about the churches. We looked at those seven churches first, but then it covers uh, the, gives the, the, prophetic history, because it's future, but it's going to happen, the prophetic history of what will happen during the tribulation period, and then right on in at the end of the book, it goes right on into what's called the millennial kingdom, and then eternity to, to follow after that. But not every event or every chapter that we come to is, is in the chronological order of the, uh, ahead of the chapter that preceded it. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but... Um, I don't know if this is how God would say it, uh, or a Bible scholar for that matter, but you can kind of think of some of the chapters as what I would call catch-up chapters. Uh, I, I think it was last week I mentioned that one of my favorite shows is Lost. And Lost, from time to time, they will throw in, as they did this past week, a catch-up uh, episode, where they, they're, they're, they're going over stuff and they're kind of putting subtitles at the bottom and they're trying to help you understand a little bit more clearly what all is going on in, in 
lost, although nobody knows. But uh, they're trying to help you understand it a little more uh, clearly, have a little more depth to it so that there's a little clearer meaning. Some of the chapters, I think, in the book of Revelation are that way. They're catch-up. For instance, uh, Revelation chapter 13 is all about the Antichrist. And you'll see that when we get there, uh, how he comes to power and what he does when he comes to power and, and what all his, his rule will be and all that kind of stuff. But we already saw chronologically that the Antichrist comes to power very early in the tribulation period. Um, and we saw that in chapter 6. So we get all the way halfway through the book almost in chapter 13 or are halfway through the book. But then we're, we'll be talking about an event that actually starts back at the tribulation period. Chapter 7, where we are today, is that way as well. Chapter 7 is, uh, I think, sort of a catch-up chapter. Now, it give, it's giving us, or it's going to give us new information. It's some information that we haven't seen before. But it's designed to help kind of fill in some of the gaps that, that we might have or some of the questions that we might have to understand a little more clearly what all is going on in this prophetic book. Revelation chapter 7, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you may have already turned there by now, and also the text will be up on the screen. Thanks for being here this morning. I appreciate it. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Ishkar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then... One of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, meaning John, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, 
They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Well, that's a mouthful. Revelation chapter 7, there's a lot happening in there. And we need to kind of just dive right into it this morning and see how far we get in this thing. Revelation chapter 7, a lot has been made, especially in these opening verses here, a lot has been made by skeptics of the Bible about this reference to these four angels who are standing at the four corners of the earth. Those that that tend to challenge the, uh, the accuracy and the validity of scriptures have pointed throughout the ages, they have pointed to this passage of scripture and said, see there, the Bible is just a bunch of hogwash. It can't be believed. The Bible teaches that the earth is flat. It's talking about four corners of the earth. Once again, uh, those who tend to challenge uh, the, the veracity and the validity of scriptures do so from ignorance. That's, that's all I can tell you. Remember, the New Testament, what we're reading, this is part of the New Testament, was originally written in Greek. In Greek, the, the word that is used for four corners of the earth is gonia. Uh, it's, it's sort of equivalent to our word, our division word that we might use might be quadrants. The word literally means uh, angles, or, uh, angles or divisions. Uh, even today, it's quite normal to... Uh, divide a map into quadrants, into sections, into divisions based on the, the, uh, the four uh, points or corners, you might even say, of a compass. North, south, east, west. In, in, um, in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12, the Hebrew equivalent word is used. And in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, uh, the writer Isaiah says that God is going to gather his people, the Israelites, it says he's going to gather them, and, and the phrase comes up, from the four corners of the earth. Clearly, even if you didn't know the context, if you're just reading that one verse, you would understand that what Isaiah is saying, and what God is saying through Isaiah, is that he is going to gather his people from everywhere, that there's nowhere that God can't reach them, there's no point that God can't go to to reach his people. So John, here in Revelation chapter 7, is simply saying that these four angels have been given jurisdiction over the entire earth, and they are coming to to wreak havoc, to bring destruction on the earth as God's wrath begins to be poured out. But before they do, another angel appears. And he says to those four angels, now wait, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, now wait a minute, guys, you cannot do this yet. You cannot bring harm or destruction on the earth yet. You can't do it until God's bondservants, he says, are sealed with the, 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 the seal of God the seal of the living God, I believe is the way he puts it, on their foreheads. So he says, you can't bring this destruction on them. You can't bring this destruction on the world until these are sealed with the seal of the living God. Now, uh, a lot has kind of been made about this uh, also, about this question about who are these 
144,000. There's been a lot of speculation through the years as to who are these 144,000. I'll be honest with you, I really don't understand what the speculation is all about. The Seventh-day Adventists claim that it's them. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that it's them. Some people have even tried to imply that it's representative of the church overall, that it's, a, that it's a representative number of the church there. But the text clearly says that they are 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The text clearly says that they are Jews. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, um, I mentioned to you that God is not through with the nation of Israel. And the further we get, you may also remember I said this, the further we get into the book of Revelation, the more we will see how God's plan begins to unfold for the nation of Israel. Well, we begin to see some of it here in chapter 7. As these 144,000, and John goes through to particular detail to call out these various tribes and to list them here, 144,000 sealed for this, this task that God has for them. Now, what that task is, we'll talk about in a minute. But we come, after we see these 144,000 that are sealed from all these various tribes, we come to verse 9. And in verse 9, we come to, if I count it correctly, we come to now the third worship experience or reference or picture of worship in heaven in the book of Revelation. This is the third one, third time that we've come to it. Each one of them, to me, is growing in intensity as it's growing in attendance. Now, John says, and we've looked, if you've been with us, if you're a first-time guest, then you just got to hang with me. But if you've been here through the weeks, you've seen these other worship experiences. I'm sure they're etched on your mind and you remember them uh, quite clearly. But now, John says, besides, besides the throne there and the lamb there at the, th- at the throne, besides the, the, the 24 elders that are representative, I believe, of the, of the church, Besides the four creatures that are there, besides the, the 10,000 times 10,000 angels that we picked up a couple of weeks ago, now John says that there is a group of people gathered there, a great multitude which no one could count. Now, let me say this. I do believe it's a finite number. I do believe that it's a specific number. But what John is saying is, is that he, as he looked out on this vast throng of people, that it was so many that it just looked like it went on forever, that it was endless, and it would be almost impossible to count all of these people gathered there around the throne. And notice this, that John says that they come from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. What a glorious scene this is. It's been building to in heaven. What an amazing scene to see all of these people gathered around here. And I love the fact that that language, apparently the language is no longer a barrier between peoples as they gather to worship the Lord God. And apparently the color of your skin, it, it, we've come to a place where the color of your skin isn't even mentioned or, or noticed. And, and we've, we've come to this place where, where your, your social standing or your economic level or none of that stuff matters anymore. All, all the ground is level as they gather around the, the, this one that they worship. 
the Lord God Almighty. What a scene. What an amazing, amazing scene. Let, let me sidebar for just a minute here if I can. I don't think that you and I have to wait until we get to heaven to experience worship like that. Okay, maybe to that magnitude or to that degree or to that big a crowd. But can I just remind us here this morning that, that the God that they that they is pictured that they're worshiping or will worship in heaven is the same God that we worship down here? The common denominator that they share up there should be the common denominator for the church down here. It's the same God whom we worship that they are worshiping in heaven. Uh, this past uh, week, I forget what day it was, this past week I had lunch with a gentleman by the name of uh, Eric Pegram. Eric and his wife uh, just moved down here from the Baltimore area, and Eric is going to be planting a church in Durham. And somebody had given him uh, my name, and uh, he just wanted to meet with me and, and talk with me about just church planting in this area and, and what he could expect and, and just some ideas and, and things like that. And one of the things that Eric said to me in the, in the course of the conversation, he said, man, I love the name of your church. And I've probably told you all this before, but Cindy and I get that a lot. We get that a lot of places where we go. People say, I love the name of your church. And Eric understood it, or at least un- understood partially what it was about our name. He said, that's what we want to plan. He said, we want to plan a church where, where people can come in and, 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 and it doesn't matter what their, what their uh, economic level is or it doesn't matter what the color of their skin is or, or what culture they may come from, but, but they can come in and, and they, can, they can worship God. They can know this, this God. And, and I said to Eric, I said, well, I said, Eric, that's exactly right. I said, it's one of the things that we work for. I said, but actually our name uh, means or, or has uh, three sort of intended meanings uh, for it. And I just thought it'd be good to remind all of us uh, this morning what those are. And I said to Eric, I said, uh, first, uh, Eric, I said, cross-culture church desires to cross over into our culture with the message of Jesus. That's first and foremost in our name, that we're crossing over into our culture. We can never forget our mission, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just to meet here and, and say, well, we showed up, we, we, we did our church thing, but that we're actually been called to go out into the culture around us and impact them with the, with the love and the message of Jesus Christ. That's first and foremost who we are, cross-culture church, to cross over into our culture. I, I said, second, cross-culture church desires to be made up of a true cross-segment of our culture. As we were sitting there that, uh, that day having lunch at Jason's Deli, I said, we want to look like Jason's Deli looks. And, and there was an Asian couple sitting over here and... and uh, uh, different colored people, black, white, brown, uh, scattered throughout the place, and, and, and men and women and young and old and, and whatever that kind of thing, just to be, to be a true cross-segment of our culture, impacting them with the message of Christ and helping to change lives, regardless of where a person comes from or even where they are currently in their life, but where God wants to take them. And I said, third, cross-culture church desires to be a culture built on the cross of Jesus Christ. That, that this culture, if you will, this gathering of people, that we build this thing on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if, and if you've forgotten, I'll remind you again, our theme verse is, is Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 that says, if anyone, if anyone, and I, I'm still with God on that, I believe anybody, wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross Daily, in other words, this idea of, of this dying self. We, we say that a lot around here. This is not about me. This, this is not about me. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. I cannot think 
of anything that would be more God-glorifying than to be a church where anyone and everyone can come through those doors and, and come into contact with, with, the, with the worship of our God, to be confronted by the, by the truth of God, to be changed by the power of God, and to contribute to the, to the work of God. I can't think of anything that would God, be more God-glorifying than to see lives change. And, and there is no perfect church, by the way, and we don't or won't always get it right, but the burning passion of our hearts should be to be a church that looks a lot like the way it looks up there or will look up there as they gather to worship the Lamb. What a scene. So, I, 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 let, me just, let me just fast forward here just a little bit. They're all gathered around. They're all worshiping. And then in verse 13, one of the elders, one of these, of these 24 elders, one of the elders asks John a question. And again, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, John, who are, these, who are these people? Who is this vast throng of people? Because remember, they weren't there in the earlier worship scenes, but now they're there in heaven. And, and he says, John, who are these people? And John says, you know, which is John's way of saying, I don't have a clue who they are. I, I do not know who these people are. Well, the elder does know, and, and so he, he, he answers John. And he says, these are those, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. In the original text, it literally reads, these are the ones who come out of the tribulation, the great one. So, so I th- it's not just talking about those who have suffered for their faith throughout the ages. He's talking about people who specifically who are there. They've come out of the tribulation, the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so this vast throng, this, this innumerable number of people gathered there are, are to, to worship God are ones that have come out of the tribulation period. They're not, they're not Old Testament saints, or I'm pretty sure John would have recognized some of them. They're not New Testament saints. They're not the church age. They're not, they're not from the, us, from the church age, or I'm pretty sure John would have recognized some of them. They are from the great tribulation period gathered there. And they've, and they've gathered around that place, and they're worshiping the Lord God. And, and the writer specifically says that they've come out of the great tribulation, and watch this, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I want to stop just a moment this morning and talk about this idea of, of blood sacrifice or blood atonement. Because this is becoming an increasingly unpopular subject in our culture. Perhaps partially because some people are offended by such talk of blood. But I think also partly because it points out the the inadequacies of other religions. I'm sorry, but Buddha didn't shed his blood for you. Muhammad didn't shed his blood for you. All of the Hindu gods didn't shed their blood for anybody. Only Jesus Christ shed his blood for the remission of sins, for the, for the forgiveness of those who would accept his sacrifice for them. Because he was the only one who was worthy. He was the only one who was, who was the sinless sacrifice. He's the only one. And, and without this blood sacrifice, ladies and gentlemen, and, and listen, I, I, I know, it's, like I said, I know it's becoming unpopular, and I understand that, that quite honestly, a, a lot of churches are kind of shying away from this idea. And, and you can talk about 
about how to have more joy in your life. And, 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 and we can talk about how to be a better spouse or we can talk about what the Bible says about sex and, and we can talk about lots of different topics. And, and if they're biblical, that's fine and good. And I speak on those things, but you and I must never forget and we must never stop telling people of the importance of the sacrifice of the lamb. The blood sacrifice of the lamb. In Acts chapter 20 and 28, Paul warns these pastors that he's leaving. He's going to be seeing for the last time. He says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own, what? Say it. Blood. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 tells us that, we have, that, that we're saved through faith in his what? In his blood. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 reminds us that we're justified How? By his blood. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. We have redemption through his. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. Christ has made peace through what? The blood of his cross. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. Simply says that without the shedding of blood. Is no remission. Peter writes in 1 Peter. And says for God. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless lamb of God. Even this book we're studying, Revelation, opens up in chapter 1 in the very opening verses in verse 5. And reminds us that everything and all honor and everything belongs to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his what? blood. Listen to me. People may not like to talk about it. Most people may not like to think about it. Not many churches are willing to, to, to bring it up, but the Bible doesn't seem to be shy about discussing it. And they apparently don't have any problem celebrating and commemorating in heaven the blood. If you know this old hymn, answer this question with me. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing it. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me White as snow, no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's sing another verse. For my pardon, this I see. Sing it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Sing it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Listen, there's good theology in here. Sing it. Sing it. Nothing. 
Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, you're doing great. Might as well sing that last verse. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing else. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We can never forget this blood because with it, symbolically speaking, we have washed our robes by placing our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Our robes have been washed white. Now, from a natural standpoint, dipping robes in blood wouldn't make them come out white, but spiritually speaking, in our lives, it's the only thing that will cause us to come out white. It's by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the shedding of his precious blood. Just to, to kind of bring this thing uh, towards an end, uh, John finds out from the elder that these are those who have come out of the tribulation period. They have uh, testified to the truth of Christ, believed on his, his name. But I want to come back to this idea for just a minute on, on who these 144,000 people are. Now, we already established that they are, they are Jews. There are 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes that are listed. But what is this task that they have been given to do? What, what is this all about? Why are these 144,000 sealed? We, we already know that many people died during tribulation and many Christians. What is it about these 144,000 that causes them to be protected? By the way, the text implies that the seal that is placed on their foreheads would be something visible. But I can't say that with absolute certainty. We don't know for absolute truth. One thing we do know is that they are protected. Throughout this terrible time of the tribulation period, until they complete the task that God has for them. What is this task that God has for these 144 well, I'm in agreement with Warren Wiersbe, the Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe, who says that he does not believe that it's by coincidence that these that are gathered now suddenly around heaven, this vast throng of people that are gathered around heaven, that it's not a coincidence that they are mentioned for the first time right after these 144,000 are mentioned for the first time. 
I believe that the, that the purpose, the task of these 144,000 is to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world during the midst of the greatest calamity and tragedy the world has ever said. During the middle of the tribulation period, these 144,000 will suddenly become evangelists for Jesus Christ who opposed him, who were against him, who wanted to have nothing to do with him, but having come to faith in him, they will go out. Imagine, if you will, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams going all over the world. And proclaiming the message of Jesus sealed with the protective hand of God upon them. And the Antichrist will try to stop their message. As he comes to power and as he solidifies his strength, he will try to stop their message. But he will be unable to. Now a question I'm thinking is, okay, what what is it that will cause? Is there something that will precipitate this event? What would cause this many Jewish people to all of a sudden come to faith in Jesus as Messiah? It's my personal conviction that the rapture of the church, the snatching out of the church when the trumpet sounds and Christ calls us home, I believe that will be the catalyst for these 144,000 Jews. I believe they're probably Orthodox Jews. In other words, they're practicing Jewish. They know the scriptures. I also believe they've probably at some point in their life have heard a witness about Jesus Christ from some Christian. And suddenly when, when these millions of Christians disappear instantly all over the face of the earth, I believe that in that moment under, under the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, those Jews will suddenly say, wait a minute, Jesus was Messiah. Those crazy Christians were right. They told us they were leaving this place. He really is. And I believe they will, they will come to faith in Jesus Christ and they will be hot-hearted to take that message to anybody else that will listen now that they've discovered the truth. And they will go all over the world spreading the, the message of Jesus Christ. I, I long, I, I've read about them. I'm a student of history and I've read about these great uh, revivals uh, throughout history and these great awakenings. I long to see one, but this is one I'm never going to see. The, the greatest revival that will ever take place on the face of the earth will actually take place during the tribulation period. Tim LaHaye says in his commentary on the book of Revelation that he believes more people will come to faith during the tribulation period than have come than, than total that came to Christ during the entire church age, 2,000 plus years. LaHaye believes more people will come to Christ during that little seven-year period of time, and he believes most of it will be on the front end than than throughout the rest of the history of the church. Millions and millions of people coming into relationship with Jesus Christ. And it will be hard. Many, most of them will give their lives because, and we'll see this when we get there, because as, as believers, as they come into relationship with Jesus Christ, they will be unable to take the mark of the beast. And we'll, we'll get there, we'll read about that. They'll be unable to take the mark of the beast as true believers in Christ. And as a result of that, they will be unable to buy or sell food or anything else for that matter. It will be hard, which is what I believe is referenced in verse 16 when it says... For this reason, they are before the throne, sorry, verse 16, they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. That it will be hard to be a believer in Jesus Christ in the tribulation period. You think it's hard sometimes at your workplace? You think it's tough to stand up for Jesus at your school? You can't even imagine what it will be like in the tribulation period. And most of them will die. And here they are gathered now. Here's the scene we see. They're gathered in heaven. With those others that we saw when we opened the fifth seal and we saw they were under the blood, was under the altar, and they cried out, said, God, when are you going to bring vengeance down on those that that killed us? And and if you remember, God said, no, you got to wait. There's still some more that are going to give their lives during the tribulation period. That's them here in chapter 7. 
It'll be hard. But verse 17 makes it clear, ladies and gentlemen, that it will all be worth it. Verse 17 says, For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water and of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. No more pain or suffering or heartache or loneliness or depression or despair or, or uncertainty or fear or worry or anything else. For us, and even for them who have, will have gone through so much during that tribulation period. Now, I'll remind you of this. Just like the worship that we mentioned before, just like we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to experience worship like that, where all peoples can come and worship the living God, in the same way, we don't have to wait. I don't believe we have to wait till the tribulation period to see the hand of God move in people's lives. I believe that, that you and I, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have also been sealed by the Holy Spirit as we've come into a relationship with Jesus. We're before the tribulation period, but we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit who's come into our lives guaranteeing a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come in our lives, the Scripture says. You and I have also been sent. I, I didn't tell you, but that's the, that's the BP squared. That's the point for the 144,000. That's their task to go and share the message of Jesus. The BP squared is simply this. The big picture biblical principle is simply this. The 144,000 will be sealed to send, send to share, and share to save. They're sealed so that they can go out and share. They'll go out and share the message of Jesus so that people can come into a relationship with him and be saved. You and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You and I have, the, have been sent in the same way to interact and touch people's lives with the message of Jesus. And you and I can still see people's lives changed if we'll be willing to recognize that the call on those 144,000 is the call on our lives. We just get to do it before they do with not nearly as much opposition as they will face. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, and I'll close with this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by the believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And as the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the picture of those gathered around there. But here's what Paul says. But how can they call on him to save them? Unless they believe in him. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how can anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. The Bible says when you and I go out in the name of Christ to try and touch someone's life in some way, God says, your feet are beautiful. What a scene in both heaven and on earth. Can you imagine what it will be like when 144,000 Jewish evangelists are suddenly turned loose on the earth? As they come to realize that Jesus is really the Messiah, they will go out into the world with the greatest evangelistic passion the world has ever seen. Sealed to send, sent to share, share to save and millions will respond. 
As powerful as that scene is, you and I can't lose sight of the fact that we've been given the same charge as the 144,000 will be given during the tribulation period. The church has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been sent by Jesus to share His love and message with the world around us, and we have to share that message if those without Christ are going to be saved. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Q&A for today is this. What does the Bible say about pets slash animals after death. What does the Bible say about pets and animals, right? Have y'all ever gotten that? Or maybe y'all ever asked that question? Will Fluffy go to heaven with me when I, when I die? Will Fluffy get... What does the Bible say about that? Now, as I said, I understand that this, this can be kind of a, a touchy subject for you because pets, man, we can become so attached to pets, can't we? I, I've, got a, I've got a cat that I'm just, uh, just dearly in love with. I'm going to miss <laughs> Y'all believe that? I got some swampland in Louisiana to sell you. Um, but no, it's... So, what does the Bible say? Well, um, the Bible doesn't say a lot, quite honestly, about animals slash pets um, in heaven. Here's what, here's what I can show you the Bible says. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, you've probably heard or read these words before. It says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The... Uh, what I want you to, to take notice of in that text is the idea that God says that he created man in his image. And that is the only thing that he created where it specifically says that we were created in his image. Now, we know the Bible tells us that God is spirit. So when, when he talks about being created in his image, uh, it's not necessarily talking about a physical image. But it may have more to do with, with, with the person of who God is and the attributes of God. Not that we have all of God's attributes, but there are things about man that are unique in our relationship with the Lord God. And one of those, I believe, is the eternal nature uh, of man that God has placed within us. There is a time where you and I did not exist, but once we are born, there will never be a time when we will not exist. In that, uh, in that way, we are eternal uh, as God has always been eternal. So only man is made in the image of 
God, and I do believe that that includes the eternal nature of God. The second verse I want to call to your attention is Genesis chapter 2, which says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Again, man is the only uh, part of God's creation where it specifically says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Whatever all that may mean, it's not stated about any of the rest of his creation. Every other place, uh, God simply spoke and it was. Let the earth bring forth vegetation and let it bring forth uh, life and let the seas bring forth. Uh, there's this idea that God spoke it and it came into existence. But as he created man, he breathed into his nostrils. He, he the, put the very breath of God in, into man. That, that, that word breath, uh, suke, that, that it can mean soul or, or, or wind that God breathed into man. So again, the special relationship uh, between God and man. So uh, bottom line, here's what I think as best I can summarize from, from, or surmise from Scripture. Only man is eternal. I, I, I'm sorry, you know, but as best I can tell, only man is eternal. Our, our pets and animals are part of God's creation, uh, and, and we need to be good stewards with them and protect them and enjoy them. And, uh, but as best I can tell, only man has an eternal uh, spirit. Second is this. Um, I'm pretty sure I had a second thing there. Oh, yeah, okay, there it is. Only man is made in the image of God. Only man uh, received the breath of God. Only man is eternal. Don't I have something else after that, Tyler? No? Well, okay, I'm supposed to. But anyway, that's right. Um, only, only man is eternal. Only man is, is made in the image of God. And um, therefore, only man, apparently, as best I can understand Scripture, lives on past that point where death enters in. So again, enjoy your pets and, and love on them. And, and they're great to have. And man, how we can become um, fond of our pets. But you are created uniquely uh, in your relationship with the Lord God. That's Q&A.